1 Samuel chapter 15, if you'll open your Bibles there, and as you're making your way there, by way of introduction, I wonder if, if you, any of you have heard the name Tim Treadwell. Do you, anybody know who Tim Treadwell was, is? Tim Treadwell, he's, um, he's the guy they called Grizzly Man. Uh, he became famous because he had an absolute fascination with grizzly bears, and this fascination led Tim Treadwell to spend 13 summers in the Katmai National Park in Alaska, and the reason he became famous in so doing that was because he, well, they, he came to be known as the grizzly whisperer. This guy would actually live amongst the grizzly bears. He would actually physically touch the grizzly bears, he would play with the grizzly bears, he would play with their cubs and, and be involved in, you know, in very intimate ways. And every told, everybody told him that he was insane, that he was crazy, and in fact, he probably was a little bit crazy. Um, you notice I'm talking about him in the past tense. Um, everybody warned him. They're like, dude, you, you're going to get eaten by one of these grizzly bears. And his response to that was to say, you know what, I would, I would proudly become grizzly poop. I would, it's called scat. I would, I would proudly become bear scat. And one of the rangers who, who heard that quote that he made, he retorted, you know what, I consider it certainly only a matter of time before Tim, Treadway, Tim Treadwell is so honored. He, he will be honored in the way that he considers it to be an honor. He will become Bear Scat. Well, on October 5th, 2003, Tim Treadwell became Bear Scat. He was eaten by a grizzly bear, uh, along tragically with his girlfriend, Amy. And uh, all they found when the, the plane that dropped him off came back to pick him up on the scheduled date, all they found was the, the destroyed camp that had been theirs, um, delicately speaking, I'll just phrase it this way, they found a few mutilated parts, um, and uh, they found a damaged video recorder um, that uh, had a tape in it. Now, the recorder had been dropped in, in the course of the attack, but it had you know, the date imprinted on it. This is how they knew when uh, this had tra- transpired. Because what happened was the video camera fell down and so they had no more video but it kept running and so it picked up all of the audio and it picked the audio up of him first being attacked and eaten. Uh, His girlfriend beating on the bear with a a frying pan and then the bear turning on her and attacking and eating her. And it's it's just a horrible thing and and it's just a horrible mental picture. But the moral of the story is that you can't play with wild animals and not end up on the menu. That's the moral of the story. And the reason why I tell that story by, introdu- by way of introduction to 1 Samuel 15 is because, well, <laughs> the big idea of 1 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 15 is uh, that you can't play with fire and not get burned. And uh, what we're going to see here is that Saul, uh, uh, King Saul, thinks that he can uh, keep uh, metaphorically speaking, this pet grizzly bear in his life, and he thinks that, it, that it, it's all going to be puppy dogs and butterflies and everything's going to be great, and he's going to be painfully uh, reminded in time that, that no, you, you can't play with fire and not get burned. You can't keep, a metaphorically speaking, a pet grizzly bear and not have it eat you for lunch. Um, 
And what we're going to see here as we start chapter 15 is that just as, as Tim Treadwell was warned, well, God's warning Saul here as well. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. And what you're, what you're picking up here, just sort of veiled, thinly veiled, and in between the lines there, is that Samuel is worried that Saul is not going to listen. Why? Well, because Saul has a history and a record of really not listening. And so Samuel's saying, look, Saul, uh, God called you to this position, and God's got a word for you, and you need to listen, and you need to pay attention. But I, I get the impression that Samuel is not holding his breath. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts... I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." And so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, uh, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Malachites. You, you may recall that uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he was a Kenite. And the Kenites were very good to Israel. They took good care of Israel. And so what Saul is doing here is he's saying, look, you know, there is, there is, a, there is a judgment that's coming upon this land. There, God is going to pour out his wrath upon the people of this land. And you... Uh, you, are, you are righteous, you are not unrighteous as they are, and so I'm giving you fair warning you know, to get out of Dodge before all this comes down. By the way, and I'm not going to get into this, it's not in my notes, but just as a, as a matter of note this, um, you know, for us as believers, and, uh, you know, we fully are expecting the return of Jesus Christ to judge this world. We're expecting, and the Bible teaches, that the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon all mankind in the last days. But God makes it very clear in His Word that He is going to take His church out of the way before His judgment comes. And I see this uh, as a picture of that. That God takes, removes the righteous out of the way so that they don't, aren't recipients of, of His wrath. Uh, but we continue. So he, he, the, the Canaanites departed. Verse 7, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt, He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Now, can I just tell you, quite frankly, these are the types of stories that lead people to mock God. These are the types of stories that people hear, and they hear stories of, you know, God directing his people, I want you to go kill all of the Amalekites, men, women, 
child, nursing infant. And people hear that and they go, oh yeah, that's the, you guys worship a great God, all loving and love, all loving God, and he's going to kill everybody. And this is, people hear that and, they, and they're prompted to, to, to mock. And, and it does prompt a question for us, which is going to serve as the basis for our studying of these nine verses today. This question, you know, I'll put it on the screen for you, is this. Why would a loving God call for the total destruction of the Amalekites? Now, there's a, there's a lot of instruction here, and there's a lot of practical instruction for us. Let's, let's answer the question, why would a loving God call for the, the total destruction of the Amalekites? There's, there's four reasons uh, that, that I've drawn out of the text. First one, if you're taking notes, to punish the guilty. To punish the guilty. See, God had an ancient quarrel with the Amalekites. Uh, if you read through the book of Exodus, what you see is that the, the Jews were coming out of Egypt. They had been, you know, the Lord moving upon uh, Pharaoh, let my people go, and so on. And so now they're coming out of Egypt, and the Amalekites attacked the Jews as they were, as they were coming out uh, of Egypt. And they were unusually cruel and vicious in their attack uh, of the Amalekites. And their tactic was to target the weak, the tired, and the infirmed. What they would do is they would hang out at the, at the back and the stragglers they would go after, they would attack, they would kill. Now, at the time, God helped Israel. He heard Moses' prayers and he helped Joshua's army to repel the attack and to have victory in, in the battles. Um, but from that moment on, God declared uh, perpetual war against the Amalekites. Uh, he, it says it in Deuteronomy 25. I'll put it on the screen. It says, uh, remember... What Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget." Now again, this, this begs the question, you know, somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute, what about all that talk about God being loving and gracious and merciful and, and all that? Well, I have two answers for that. Number one, and my first answer immediately would be, you have to understand, this has been hundreds of years in the making. I mean, that right there is a picture of God's grace and mercy. He has given them hundreds of years to repent of their ways. And they have not repented. They have not relented. They remain the enemies of Israel. They remain steadfast committed to the extermination of the Israelites. There has been no repentance. And, and so, you know, you, you can't put, and it's, it's not unlike, I mean, I had a conversation recently with, with some parents talking about, you know, one of their adult children and, um, you know, having problems with their adult child and the adult child living at home and wanting to have complete full independence and all of that stuff. And, and yet, you know, I mean, and this is a common conversation. I have this conversation often uh, with, with, you know, adult parents wringing their hands about, well, what am I going to do? with my wayward child. And my response, you know, so often is to say, well, you know, you're going to kick him out. That's what you're going to do. You're going to show, you know, the most love that you can show to this person who refuses to grow up by letting them hit something hard, you know? And, and that's, that's the way to do it. Now, when the parent follows through, you know, what, what, what's the kid going to do when, when, when this happens? 
you're going to say to the parent, oh, you're being unloving. You're not, you know, you're not good and you're not merciful. And the parent's going to say, I've given you nothing but love and mercy. And, and you just won't grow up. So guess what? There's no teacher like the burnt finger. And you're going you're gonna to reap some consequences. Same with a drug addict. You know, you try to, to, to you know, make some, some inroads into a drug addict's life, and all of a sudden they're going to throw it up in your face and say, oh, you're not being loving, you're not being supportive, you're not being, you're right, I don't, I don't love your habit, and I won't support it. You know, and so for God here, this is, you know, he, he calls for total destruction to punish the guilty, and he has been nothing but long-suffering. Nothing but long-suffering. My second answer is a little bit more long-winded than that. Turn to, to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, it's to the right, many books. You're actually better off going to the Gospel of Matthew and hanging a left and going back a few books. Find the book of Jonah there. Chapter 3, and and we're just going to read just all of chapter 3 here. It's 10 verses, and and here's, here's what it says. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Why did it come a second time? Well, because the first time Jonah didn't listen. God, God had a message for him. He basically is concerned about the Ninevites. He told Jonah, the prophet, I want you to go, and I want you to, to you know, speak to the people of Nineveh. And uh, Jonah's got a couple things cooking in his heart, no doubt. Number one, he's scared. The Ninevites were wicked. They were awful. It's, it's modern-day Iraq, uh, and uh, things then were similar to the way things are now in the sense there's lots of brutality and so on. And Jonah just didn't want to I don't want to go to Iraq, you know. And, and so he got in his ship going to Tarshish, going the opposite direction. Um, but uh, the second reason why he went in the opposite direction was because he, the people of Nineveh, of Nineveh were despised, horribly brutal, awful people. And Jonah, he didn't want God to have mercy on them. So he's like, I'm not going to go preach to them because what's going to happen? They're going to repent and you're going to save them. Uh, and I don't want that. I want to see them die and go to hell. And so he went the opposite direction. He had lots of rebellion. Anyway, so... And you guys know the story, right? Jonah, Jonah and the, the big fish, Jonah and the whale. We don't know if it was a whale. It was a big fish, swallowed him. And uh, there inside the belly of the whale, three days, uh, barfs him up on Nineveh. God's like, you go in the opposite direction. I got a boat going the other direction. Happens to be a submarine. Here you go. Um, and, uh, and so now there he is sitting in whale puke on the beach. And now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, wash yourself off, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now when Nineveh was now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Take you three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. <clears throat> That's a big city. And Jonah. Verse 4, began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? 
And then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, here's what we know from history. What we know from history is that they had a great repentance here, that God gave them forgiveness, and that fully a hundred years transpires, which is, which is, you know, one to two generations, depending on how you want to look at it. And, uh, and so now they had a time of revival. They had a time of repentance. They had a time of God's grace and God's favor. And, and, and about a hundred years after this, what happened was they turned right back to their old ways, and ultimately God did judge them. Ultimately, God did bring destruction upon them. But what you have to get here is that that is not the heart of God. The heart of God desires desperately that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. God says, listen, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life, please. And he's gracious, he's long-suffering, he's merciful, and he does everything he can that we might know him and come into a saving faith of him and into fellowship with him, that we might be spared from his wrath. But listen, at some point, a holy and a righteous judge, a holy and a righteous God has to judge sin, otherwise he would not be good. And so he has a righteous standard, and if there is no repentance, he must judge. Now listen, for some here this morning, Very much like the Ninevites. In the sense that, listen, God's been gracious and he's been merciful to you. And and, and God would say to you this morning, listen, I don't want to bring wrath upon you. I don't don't want this to go badly. I'm I'm calling out to you. I'm crying out to you. Choose life. Listen, can you you just stop already? Can you surrender? Can you, can you just come to the end of yourself and, and confess, Lord, I've sinned against you. I, I, I've, been, I've been running headlong in the wrong direction. See, what the Lord would say to you today, if that's you, if that's the position that you're in today, is that he loves you. And he wants to have fellowship with you. This is the Lord's heart. This is his mind. But look, at some point, if you will not relent, if you will not repent, then God has to judge sin because that's that's what a holy, righteous God has to do. You know, there's an interesting exchange recorded in Genesis chapter 18. You don't have to turn there, but it's between God and Abraham. And basically, God's preparing to pour out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah because they are sinful, sinful, sinful. And he looks at them and he says, they're constant thoughts, every, it consumes them night and day. It's how, that they, how can they sin? What are, the, what are the sinful acts that they can do? And so he goes, you know what? I'm done with them and I'm going to judge them and, and I'm going to pour my wrath out upon them. Now God, he, he, he said, nah, you know what? I, I think I'm going to bring Abraham in on my plan. So God goes to Abraham and he lets him know, hey look, here's what's going to go down. Now this troubles Abraham. So much so that Abraham you know, basically goes toe to toe with God. He's like, wait, 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 wait. You know, you're going to judge a whole city there. Now, what, what, if, what if there's 50 righteous people in that city, God? Are you going to destroy them then? 
God's like, no, if there's 50 righteous in that city, I won't destroy them. Abraham's, well, what about 40? No, not 40. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And every time, God's like, no, if there's, if there's 10 righteous, I won't destroy it. See, again, Abraham struggled with the same thing that a lot of us struggle with and that many people struggle with when they come to a text uh, like the one here in 1 Samuel 15. And they're like, Whoa, man, how can God judge and destroy you know, men, women, children? No, you know why? Because the idea behind that question assumes that they're innocent. And God's already gone on record and his conversation with Abraham is proof. Look, he does not consume the innocent. He doesn't judge the innocent. He doesn't pour his wrath out on the innocent. And so what we can conclude with all authority is to conclude there is no, there's none innocent there. God's judgment is pure. It's right. And so he's punishing the guilty. Now you go, well, wait a minute. What about children? Says he's killing children. He's killing nursing infants. What about that? Are you telling me that they're not innocent? Well, this is the second reason why a loving God would call for the total destruction of the Amalekites. Number one, to punish the guilty. But number two, to preserve the innocent. You're like, well, how does that work? Here's how it works. Think about God's mercy and his grace in the Amalekites' lives for hundreds of years. Now, what has happened over those hundreds of years that he's been merciful and gracious to the Amalekites? What has happened is that generation after generation has come and gone, and they are wicked, 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 wicked. And so what that means is that those children and nursing infants who at one time were innocent and pure, they grew up to be wicked, blaspheming heathens that denied the Lord and that suffer an eternity in hell. And so God, being gracious, being long-suffering, giving them every opportunity, now at this point says, look, if I judge this nation right now, number one, I'm completely justified because there are none innocent. And number two, for those infants, for, for, those, for those children, my bringing judgment right now, do you know what it does for them? Well, here's what it does for them. It gives them the hope of eternal life. It gives them the hope of eternal life. See, because you read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and eventually we will get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and what happens there is that David, King David, sins against the Lord. Commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills her husband to get away with it. They produce a son. And all the while, God sitting there sees this whole thing goes down, and the Bible tells us God's like, I'm not amused. This is wicked, this is sinful, And even though, David, you're a man after my own heart, i got to judge sin. And so God, he steps in and he brings his judgment upon the situation. And what we read and what we discover is that his son, as, as a consequence of God's judgment, his son dies. Now what we learn from that section of text is that his son went to heaven. Why? Well, because his son is innocent. In other words, what happened was God judged sin, but he preserved the innocence. Now, I want you to think about it in the economy of God. Because we think about things in the economy of, uh, of man, and we go, oh, wait a minute, innocent children and infants and so on. And No, from the economy of God, here's what it is. Hey, I'm judging sin, but I'm preserving the innocent. And what happens is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in his presence, his fullness of joy. And so what I'm doing is I'm sparing these children's lives. See, 
They lose their temporary earthly life, but they gain eternal life, and it's far better than the alternative. Matthew's gospel, Jesus said this, he said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so, you know, God's destruction of the Amalekites, it's to punish the guilty, it's to preserve the innocent. Thirdly, the third reason why a loving God would call for the total destruction of the Amalekites to paint a picture of the flesh. To paint a picture of the flesh. Now, pay close attention because this is where the text turns extremely practical for you and for me. All right? So, so God wants to paint a picture of the flesh here. How so? Well, the Amalekites, they were descendants of Esau. And, and if you remember your Old Testament history in Genesis 25, you know, what happens there, Esau, he's now the firstborn. He's the guy that has the, the birthright. Right? And, and, and all. And he's a hunter and he's out in the field and he's hunting. And all of a sudden he comes home. Now, while he was gone, Jacob is, is busy cooking and he's making a stew there at home. So often on Sundays, my wife will throw a, a roast in the crock pot in the morning, you know? And I come home from church and you open the front door and it's like angels are singing. It's just, you know, the smell is just like insane. And, uh, and you know, or, or Thanksgiving morning, you know, you put the turkey in the oven and then throughout the day, it's just, you know, just incredible smells that are wafting through the house. And so this is what greets uh, uh, Esau when he walks in the door. Jacob, you know, making this bowl of stew, and, and, and Esau's like, dude, what, what is for lunch, man? Let's have some of it. And Jacob's like, eh, 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 no, no, that, this is not for you, buddy. He's like, oh, come on, give me some of this. What, what, what do you want for it? He's like, I want your birthright. Now, the birthright basically meant that you were in charge. You were the chief recipient of your father's inheritance, and you got a double portion, and you were in charge, you know, of, of managing everything, and you, you know, had the, the headship there, assumed the, you know, the, all of the, the rewards and so on. And, uh, and so he says, ah, I want your birthright. And, and Esau's like, well, what do I care? I'm going to die here, so I'll take it. Now, he's not literally going to die, but there are a couple of things there. Number one, he, you know, he's, he's like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm starving right now. I want that right now. And the other thing is, is that he's, he's basically say, he's despising his birthright and the idea of, well, you know, I'm going to die someday. What do I care about having the birthright? Right now, I'm hungry. Now, when he, when he sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup, he revealed two things. Number one, how little he valued his inheritance. Just how little he thought about it. And, and the second thing was how much he was controlled by his appetites. And in this way, what I want you to see is that he's not so very different from you and me when we're in sinful flesh. That we can get to the place to where, you know, my, my, my inheritance in Christ... Well, sometimes I just don't value it as much as the thing that the tangible temptation that's right there. And, 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 you know, and my appetites, my fleshly appetites, it's like I just want to satisfy my fleshly urges, you know, and so what, what do I care if it costs me the eternal to gratify the, the, the temporary right now? So, so what we see here is that the Amalekites, they serve as a picture of our fallen sinful nature. And of the sinful heart of man. And we have to see them in that light. Because what they represent is that part of us 
that mind, mindlessly trades away things of eternal value in order to satisfy our temporary lusts. All right? This is a hugely important lesson for us here. When God says, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites, it's the, he's, he's giving you and me a picture, saying, I want you to utterly destroy those things that tempt you to sacrifice and forsake the things of the eternal. I want you to, to, to kill that, man. That grizzly bear is going to eat you up. You have to kill it, and you have to see it for what it is. It's a bowl of soup for crying out loud. We're talking about eternal things. Jesus was asked the question, again in Mark's gospel, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And as it turns out, you know, some people, they're just like Esau, they will sell out for next to nothing. I mean, I I saw in the news in in January 2009, some girl went on eBay and she auctioned off her, her virginity. Now, there's all kinds of people who, who, have, who have done this, and most of them have been, you know, snopes out, where it's, oh, that's, that, you know, that was a publicity stunt or whatever. But by all accounts, this, this chick actually did it. You know, Southern California girl, and, and people were freaking out trying to, like, get her arrested. There's got to be something illegal about that. No, she did it through this thing in Nevada, and prostitution's legal in Nevada. Sold her soul for some money. Just, oh, yeah, I'm going to sell my virginity. I read another story that happened in May of 2012. This one made me angry. I mean, I, I'm like homicidal over this. You know, this Florida mom, she was arrested after the fact. Here's what she did. She sold her six-year-old daughter to two men for sex so she could get money for drugs. There's another story in Kentucky where this mom, you know, she tried to sell her, her newborn child for $5,000, again, for drug money. People will sell their soul for stuff. Now, we're rightfully shocked and appalled by stories like that, but, and we should be rightfully shocked by things like that. But the, th- the sad truth is, is that people sell out. You and me have sold out eternal things for the equivalent of a pot of porridge. Donald Barnhouse, a 19th century theologian, he said this. He said, history shows that men prefer illusions to realities. They choose time rather than eternity. And the pleasures of sin for a season rather than the joys of God forever. Men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls. And multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. Men sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. Here's my question for you. What do you sell out for? What appetites tempt you to compromise? Is it, is it internet porn? Is it, is it an inappropriate relationship on Facebook? You're like, oh, you know what? It's, I'm just, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's a girlfriend I had in college, but you know what? I'm just, I just want to see what she's up to. No, you don't. There's something else there. You know, and it's inappropriate and you know it. What is it that you sell out for? See, because here's what God says. God says, kill that thing. Because it's going to kill you, man. It's going to eat you up. You need to kill it. You need to kill it dead. And the people go, no. We'll, we'll, We'll destroy the worthless stuff. But the good stuff, man, we want for ourselves. Which is just completely ironic. Why? Because God called it bad. So it's not good. 
God called it bad. But they see it as good. So they want to keep it. Alexander McLaren said this, Partial obedience is complete disobedience. See, here's the deal. I want you to get this. People don't typically wake up and go, Oh, I think I'll sell my kid today. You know, they don't wake up and go, Oh, I think, you know, I'll have an affair today and just totally ruin my life. What happens? It's a, it's a little compromise. It's, 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 a, it's, it's oh, it's just my, my huggable cutie, you know, grizzly bear. Tim Treadwell had nicknames for all these grizzly bears. You know, one was, one was you know, whatever, little Mr. Chocolate or whatever. He would call it all these stupid names, Mr. Boo Boo, or all these, these cutesy little names. And they ate him up. And people, they don't wake up going, this thing's going to eat me alive. They go, oh, it's Mr. Chocolate. Just, this, is just, this is just my little cutesy little thing. So what do they do? They compromise because they're unwilling to utterly destroy it. And once you see, that's exactly what Saul does. Look again there at verse 9. It says, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. The oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. <clears throat> they were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And we're going to get into it next week, but Saul is just completely so jacked up in his sin that, you know, Samuel shows up and Saul has the audacity to go, Hey, praise the Lord, I obeyed him. And, and Samuel's going to be like, what is all this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears, man? Bah, you're a liar, you know. And because and he, 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 he kept all of this stuff. In Romans 8, 13, Paul said this. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, writing the Colossians, he said, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. See, whenever I have the opportunity to, to lead people to Christ, whenever I have the opportunity to, to give the invitation, by God's grace, I was able to give an invitation this morning. We had people come to Saving Faith in Christ. I'll give an invitation at the end of this message. I pray if you don't know the Lord that you would respond and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And every time I do that, what I, what I will say to the person is, listen, you've come forward, but listen, now you've got to go forward. Because, you know, you need to understand... Following Jesus isn't a profession and a prayer and then you go about your life and nothing changes. What following Jesus is, it means that I'm born again. It means that I live a new life. And living in a new life means that I now have new behavior and I have new habits. And it means that with this new nature, I put to death the old nature. I crucify the old man. And I put on the new day by day. This is, this is what it means. By the way, this is the significance of baptism. You, know, you can read all about it in Romans chapter 6. We don't have the time to turn there. But in Romans chapter 6, we're told that you know, there's this hugely symbolic picture of being baptized. And what is the picture? It's the dying to self. It's the dying in Christ. Just as Jesus was crucified, died, buried and rose again on the third day, when I am baptized, it's symbolic identifying with Jesus Christ, that my flesh has been crucified with Christ, that with Christ I have been buried. 
And, and, and with Christ, I am resurrecting. I'm coming up out of that water into newness of life. And so there has to be that part of us that recognizes the Amalekites in our life that are there, that we see as being these cutesy little things, and I'm utterly destroyed all that God wants me to destroy, but I got this one little thing in my life that I want to keep around. Because it's, it's Mr. Chocolate. No, it's going to kill you. And so, so we, we have to, to understand that, that God definitely wants to paint a picture of the flesh. And he wants us to get that this thing will kill you. It's been said that a faith that doesn't change you doesn't save you. We got a great example of this in the Gospel of Luke. And you'll remember the story from Sunday school if you've been in church for any length of time. But there you've got a guy named Zacchaeus, and he's a, he's a dirtbag. He's a tax collector. He rips everybody off. Something's never changed. And, and he's, he's there, and, and every, he's despised by everybody. The man has achieved what most of us don't, but the people who do, it's, they're the worst of all. And that is, he gets everything he ever wanted, and he finds out that it doesn't satisfy See, most of us live lives where we think, oh, you know what, if I won the lottery, it'd be great. And then there are those few people in life who've attained all that and they realize it doesn't fix a thing. It's just more money to be miserable with. And Zacchaeus is miserable. And so what happens is he, he hears Jesus is coming and at this point, he's desperate. And so he climbs up in a tree looking for Jesus as he comes and Jesus sees him up there and he says, you dirtbag, why would I have anything to do with you? Of course, that's not what Jesus says. He says, he laughs. He's like, Zacchaeus, come on down out of that tree, man. A little short little guy has to climb up in a tree. Here, Mr. Rich Man has to climb up in a tree to see Jesus. He's desperate. He's a man just reaching for Jesus in any way. I just need, I can't keep living like I'm living now. Maybe some of you are like that this morning. I can't keep living like I'm living now. Jesus is looking for you. And so Zacchaeus Come, let me have, I'm coming to your house today, buddy. And, and so Jesus goes there, and, and Zacchaeus now, Jesus in his home, and he's received just the loving, the forgiveness, the merciful God who visits him in his darkest hour. And Zacchaeus says, he stood, the Bible says, and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. What I want you to see in Zacchaeus right there, that's the guy who killed the Amalekites. That's the guy who said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to hold anything back. I just, Lord, I just want you. That's all I want. He was changed. Because he was changed, his behavior changed. The fourth reason why a loving God would call for the total destruction of the Amalekites, and at this point I want you thinking, what are the Amalekites in your life that need to be destroyed? The fourth reason why a loving God would call for the total destruction of the Amalekites is for future protection. For future protection. You see there in verse 8, Saul, he, he takes Agag alive. It says, he also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And what a horrible name, Agag, right? Um, and he utterly destroyed all of the people 
with, the, with the edge of the sword. Now, what was, what was common in this day and age was that when you would conquer an army, that you would march those, those, the army, you know, the soldiers, you would march them through your town, through your capital city. You know, and it was a way of humiliating them and exalting yourself. And the height and the epitome of this would to be marching that king through the streets. Now, God called him to kill the king, but Saul, he wants to glorify himself. This is the, I mean, Saul's doing a Ron Burgundy here. Hey, come see how good I look. You know, he takes King Agag and, and he just wants to march him through and it's all just to puff himself up and oh, I want to keep this, this is a little treat for me. And he kept the best of the animals. He kept all that was good. And again, that's a misnomer because God has already said it's bad. So it ain't good. It is bad. And, and that's Saul's problem. See, Saul is seeing this stuff as, hey, this is good. And God's like, no, 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 it's bad. And, and here's what, what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the key is that word confess. And what that word confess means is to agree with God. What that means is we got to call sin what God calls sin. And Saul won't call it sin. Saul calls it, I'm going to keep the good stuff. I'm going to keep that. I won't destroy it. He kept a little grizzly bear around, right? I'm just going to keep this thing. Here's what we're going to come to discover, and this, this just brings us right to the end of this and right to the chase. At the end of 1 Samuel, what we're going to see is that Saul's going to be killed on Mount Gilboa. Ask me who kills him. An Amalekite. See, apparently, when he kept all that is good, not only did he keep King Agag alive, but he kept some other Amalekites alive as well, clearly. Not only that, if you were with us when we went through the book of Esther, who's the, who's the bad guy in the book of Esther? Haman, who seeks to destroy the entire nation of the Jews and comes very close to pulling it off? He's an Amalekite too. See, God knows what he's talking about when he tells you, I want you to utterly destroy the sin in your life. I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Because God can see the end from the beginning. He knows what's up. We, we live in a finite world, in the, in the realm of time, and we think we know better than God. I mean, ask anybody who bought a house in 2005. It's like, oh man, this thing is going up and up and up and up. I got to get on this train or it's going to pass me by. I'll sell my soul to get on this thing. Now, what if that person knew, hey, this thing, it, it's, it's going to crash next year, buddy. The end of 2006, woo, right off the end, man. You don't want to sink your dough there. Now, if somebody actually knew, they'd kill that dream. They'd be like, well, I'm not putting my money there. I'll stick it in a shoebox under my bed. It'll do better. And it would have. Why? Because, you know, if we know the end from the beginning, then we can absolutely trust the advice that, 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 that comes from that. And God says, look, when I tell you to kill something, I understand, and I know what I'm saying, and I know why I say it. John Owen said this, he said, kill sin, or sin will be killing you. So, three questions that I'd like you to jot down just to take a walk with this week. There's probably more. But, the, but these three questions, here's what comes to my mind. Number one, 
what is God asking you to attack and destroy? <laughs> Some of you are thinking, well, I got this guy's name and I got that. No, no, no. No. Talking about sin. What is God asking you to attack and to destroy? And you really got to pray about these questions, by the way, when you ask them, because the temptation is that, I mean, we're talking idle territory. We're talking, I want to keep this little pet sin here. We like these pet sins. These are the good things, as far as we're concerned. So you really have to pray and say, Lord, I need you to help me to see what you see, not what I want to see, all right? So, so what is God asking you to attack and destroy? Here's the second question. Are you calling something good that God has called bad? Are you calling something good that God has called bad? Again, prayerful walk with that. Third question. Is there anything that you are unwilling to destroy? 